Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show Podcast. Premier Mo, thank you so much. Uh, as I say to you every time, you're always accessible to us. You provide information that Canadians need, and it's deeply appreciated, sir. Thanks so much, Roy. And uh, interesting song, uh, in- interesting introductory song, given the incorrect statements that were made alongside it. But uh, I'll leave that where it is. Well, some things are not accidental. <laughs> <laughs> How are you doing, Roy? I'm doing well, Premier. How are you? Fabulous. Thanks. Let's talk about... Uh, what happened on Thursday, and, and maybe the best way I can do this is to just quote from your statement and ask you to expand on it. Uh, you, you wrote, the first point you made was, during yesterday's call of Canada's first ministers, it was clear the provinces and the federal government ultimately share the same goal of getting as many people vaccinated as quickly as possible. However, it was also clear that the lack of consistent and reliable information from the federal government continues to be a significant concern. Saskatchewan is relying on the federal government for a consistent supply of vaccines and a consistent supply of information. So far, we're receiving neither. Premier? Yeah, and, and I think that's true. And, uh, um, you know, and, and it's not just Saskatchewan, it's all provinces and territories and thereby collectively all Canadians that are relying on the federal government to uh, procure, yes, enough vaccines for each of us. Um, but also, uh, you know, the hope is that we would be able to have access to those vaccines as soon as possible. And that was the arrangement that the provinces had made with the federal government some time ago is that the federal government would procure, uh, take care of the procurement of vaccines given they would have the collective power to purchase and power to purchase on behalf of all Canadians and, and, and what would hopefully be uh, the best deal in getting us uh, not only the appropriate amount, but getting them as soon as possible. And then the provinces um, would ensure that we had the capacity to administer these uh, vaccines to Canadians through our provincially operated, uh, through, through provincial jurisdiction, uh, our healthcare systems. And so it seemed like a, a pretty good arrangement. And, uh, where we fell down to some degree, and I've said this a number of times, is is uh, it appears that we've signed quarterly delivery contracts, um, and, and that's that's problematic. If we have six million doses that are coming in the first quarter, and they all show up in the last two weeks, uh, that that isn't real helpful to uh, uh, you know providing uh, that access uh, to to people as our as our administration systems, our public health care systems. I don't know that they'll be able to. I do that in that short of order. It'd be much better to have it spread over some period of time, and then maybe even increase some of the uh, the access, like we've seen in other areas, like the EU and uh, and the US, where they are now procuring additional vaccines in Q1. So we need the vaccines. We need them quickly, um, and we also need the information to know roughly when they're coming. Uh, the quarterly information isn't helpful for weekly uh, for our folks on the ground in many often cases rural and remote communities that are providing this vaccine. Um, we need to know roughly what's coming, when it's coming, so we can plan for that. And that information has been very, very sparse. Um, in fact, I, I think we're down to 
possibly expecting about 2,000 vaccines next week. We did far more than that yesterday. Uh, just a, a, re- a real problematic uh, case in, in, with the lack of information and ultimately the lack of vaccines here in Q1. Yeah, Premier, uh, the second point that you made in your statement was this. Canada's premiers have called on the federal government to allow provinces to confidentially review the contracts. What's going on? Well, that, that is so that we can plan the, uh, um, the, the delivery of these vaccines. Um, as I said, if, if you take 6 million vaccines throughout uh, Q1 and you divide them up between the weeks that we have in Q1, even if it's increasing, if the number of vaccines are increasing uh, throughout that week, we can plan for that. We can plan to have people on the ground in northern communities, in, in long-term care centres, uh, ensuring that we're getting our most vulnerable vaccinated first. What's challenging is to uh, have, have that system set up and then receive nothing one week and then receive a, a, a little bit more uh, the next week and then receive yeah. nothing next week. And, and today, it looks like we're going, we're going to receive in Saskatchewan uh, less than 2,000 next week. We have no idea what we're going to receive uh, for the rest of the month. Uh, I, I, we do it with Pfizer, but, but no, we're not expecting any Moderna for the rest of the month, and we don't know what we're receiving in March. Um, and I, I think we have about four and a half million uh, doses left to receive here in Canada if we're actually going to achieve that six million uh, dose mark. Here we are approaching the halfway point of, for, of the first quarter, and we're just nowhere near uh, where we need to be. So, and, and we don't know when, you know, what's coming and, and when it's coming. So I don't yeah. know how we can plan a vaccination program around this. Well, Premier, I, I probably should have extended the question because what I want, wanted to ask you about. And again, your line is Canada, Canada's premiers have called on the federal government to allow provinces to confidentially review the contracts, contracts between the government and the major pharmaceutical firms. What is the prime minister saying to you as a group of premiers who have every reason to be asking for this? Because logistically, you're the ones responsible for the distribution on the ground at the provincial level. What's the prime minister? What, what, what rationale is he employing? Uh, denying you, you know, a look at the contracts. Is it just that they're going to argue that there are confidentiality clauses? Is that their sole argument? Well, that, that's where the argument is. And, and listen, we, we don't need to see um, the entirety of the contract. But what we do need to see, for instance, would be the delivery schedules. Uh, you know, are the delivery schedules, is there anything uh, with respect to weekly or biweekly delivery schedules uh, within the contracts? That's the type of information that we're not getting. I mean, that's the type of information that we would be looking for, for example, uh, in those contracts. I'm sure there's other uh, pieces of the contracts that maybe the, the companies might not want to, uh, um, you know, make public, and that's fine. But there are a number of things uh, within those contracts that the provinces do need to know if we're going to administer uh, the, the vaccines in a timely manner. And listen, contracts have been made public in other areas of the world. We're seeing, I believe, in the U.S. and certain European Union countries, um, maybe even Australia, there's been a number of contracts that have been made uh, public. And that's what we're ask, not even asking for here. What we're asking for is the people that are putting together the actual on-the-ground vaccination plans, can they see the contracts so that we can, uh, so that we can actually properly plan uh, the service that we want to provide to Canadians in, quite, in such short order. So I don't know what the holdup is there. I hope it changes, and I hope it changes quite quickly. Premier Mo, how would you describe the mood of the premiers collectively as you try to negotiate and deal with this federal government? And how do you, what's your mood? Well, it, it's just simple frustration uh, across the board. Uh, the, the, the provinces have, and the territories have a job to do, and that's to 
you know, deliver this vaccine on the ground. And that's not an easy job. And it's, it comes down to our frontline healthcare workers from coast to coast to coast. And, and in order for them to, to plan for that efficient delivery, they need um, the information on how many vaccines they are going to receive and roughly when they're going to receive those vaccines. And we, we just aren't getting that. And it, it, it makes for just a, a very, very challenging situation. I think that's why you saw the premiers ask um, if we're not going to be able to publicly release these contracts, allow the provinces to go in and have a confidential look at these contracts so that we can, on our own, ascertain as to what we feel the the, uh, the delivery schedule would be because we're just quite simply not getting that information in in uh, in due time from the federal government. And as I said in my statement, all too often, we're getting it through the, the media outlets, which is should be concerning for all Canadians. Well, it is. It is for me. It is. Well, do you have a sense that the federal government is manipulating the vaccine issue to its own benefit? I don't know if I would say they're manipulating the vaccine uh, issue to their own benefit. I would say this is a very um, fast-moving uh, environment, and, and we need to be at the front of the line in all of the, the global conversations that are that are happening. We see the U.S. that has procured in, in excess of a, an additional 100 million vaccines, uh, in the in Q1, not in Q2 or Q3, but in Q1, uh, we see the U.S. When we go back to the five to six dose labeling uh, uh, conversation, the U.S. is changing their Pfizer doses from five to six doses. They're receiving the same number of vials. In Canada, if Health Canada moves forward with changing their label from five to six doses, we're actually going to get a reduction in our number of vials. We should not allow that to happen. And if, if it is going to happen, I'm an advocate for not changing uh, the labels because here in Saskatchewan, where we are extracting an extra dose out of those vials about half of the time, it would mean uh, a label, uh, the lack of a label change would put us at about plus 15,000 doses. I'll take those in this very, uh, you know, skinny environment uh, today. So yeah, there's all of these things that the federal government needs to engage on aggressively, ambitiously, and I, I, I'm, not, I'm not convinced they are. Well, I sense from your statement and what you've been saying to me today and what you said to us last time we spoke, a growing frustration, uh, certainly from you and I would imagine from your fellow premiers as well. So what are you logically expecting to happen going forward? And is there, if the situation doesn't improve, if the relationship doesn't improve, if there isn't more give and take and more sharing between Ottawa and the provinces, is there um, um, a possibility that the premiers may decide to go it alone? Well, there's always uh, that possibility, and, and um, but I think our strength is 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 to work together with the federal government, and and I'm not saying that the premiers uh, won't and aren't always having a look at is there options to uh, procure some capacity, most importantly domestically, and uh, and I've been in close touch with our domestic producer in in Saskatoon, Beto Interback. I know I've talked with other premiers about. Um, not only the production capacity uh, that the federal government has uh, thankfully invested in in Montreal and 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 in in uh, in Saskatoon as well, but there's private production capacity that that I hope the federal government would look at. That was urged on the call, and the provinces I think uh, will also look at that uh, from time to time as well. There's other private uh, produ- domestic producers here that we should be encouraging to come online with their production facilities, if not for. Uh, the security of, of vaccine this fall uh, heading into next winter for the next time that we're faced with this. I, and I, I think that's really the, the insurance plan that, that, that the premiers at least were, were discussing is ensuring that if we're not sitting around in September 
having this very same conversation about a lack of access to vaccines in what has increasingly become a, you know, a very uh, protectionist uh, world. We, even Canada, is pr- trying to protect some of their su- supply with uh, the agreements they have with, uh, with COVAX, which is a, a mechanism. Um, I'm not sure if that mechanism was set up to supply Canada originally, but everyone is very protectionist uh, around the access to vaccines they have either produced in their in their jurisdiction or or whatever they may have access to and i i think it's important for us as uh, as provincial leaders in the federal government to really have a hard look at all of the streams that we have for domestic supply we should start flowing those into our bucket now so that they're ready so that we don't have this conversation in six months and we don't have this conversation next time we're faced with a, a pandemic of this type so premier what's your sense will we be having this conversation in september or is your sense that what Mr. Trudeau is assuring us will happen, and that is that each Canadian who wishes to be vaccinated will be vaccinated by September. Do you believe that's going to be happening, or will we have this conversation, you and I, again um, at the end of the summer? I, I won't preclude whether we're having this conversation, but if we have ordered on all of our delivery schedules or on a quarterly basis, we can expect uh, in each quarter, I think, um, what we're starting to see shape up in quarter one, where we're expecting 6 million vaccines, likely going to get about 4 million of them in the last two weeks of the quarter. Um, If that is the way our delivery schedule is set up for each of these contracts, uh, we have some challenging days ahead of us. I can can tell you that as, uh, and from a provincial perspective, uh, they'll be very challenging for our frontline healthcare workers uh, to have no vaccines for two and a half months and then have, you know, 4 million vaccines uh, dumped on them in a two week period. And then it continue to have no, no vaccines until, the end of the next quarter that 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 has to change so and and, and as does the uh, the ability of the federal government and the federal public service uh, to work with the provincial uh, public health agencies so that we can actually do what what we all want to happen is for okay. Canadians to have vaccines as quickly as possible what's your view of the prime minister refusing to disclose even to provincial premiers tasked with organizing the rollout of vaccines in their provinces any details of the contracts the federal government signed with pharmaceutical companies like Pfizer and Moderna? Uh, Minister Anand followed with the declaration Ottawa's bound by confidentially, confidentiality clauses in the contracts. What do you say? Well, it's good to be here, Roy, again. That's been an exciting week in the COVID vaccine story, of course. There's lots going on. Uh, with respect to the contracts, um, I don't know why uh, the Prime Minister won't share those with the provinces um, you know, they don't have to share the commercial terms in terms of prices and so on, but they do need to know what the structure of the contracts looks like. And as you mentioned, other countries have, have shared those contracts. Um, I suspect that uh, one of the reasons why they don't want to share them is that there's something in there that they don't want them to see. Uh, to me, that's about the only reason why they wouldn't do it. Um, you know, I'm sure they've, they've uh, checked with their lawyers. Uh, they've looked at what other countries have done, and I don't know why they wouldn't share them. So it's a bit of a mystery. And just to comment on the provinces and listening to uh, Premier Mo, uh, yeah, the provinces are in a very difficult situation. I was doing a little calculation the other day, but if uh, the doses show up starting in late March, uh, and if we are going to vaccinate um, the population of Canada, which is 38 million people by the end of September, uh, let's assume that we're going to vaccinate 30 million of those people. The provinces are going to need to vaccinate 300,000 people per day 
every day, seven days a week from the middle of March to the end of September in order to vaccinate everybody with two doses. I mean, that's a huge challenge, and they need to know uh, what those contracts look like, what the numbers look like, when they're going to be rolled out, and so on. Yeah, I uh, I actually asked Premier Mo. Uh, I asked the Premier whether the Premiers as a group might decide they're just fed up enough with the lack of a relationship or positive relationship or relationship that should exist between the provinces and the federal government, that the premiers might decide as a group to go it alone. And he did not discount, or did not did not say that that could not happen. They obviously would prefer it not to happen. But so, um, so, so what, what about that? Uh, what do you, uh, Mr. Lucas, do you think those contracts might contain information about the vaccine rollout in Canada, which would contradict what the Prime Minister has repeatedly claimed. In other words, as you just mentioned, everyone who wants to be vaccinated in Canada will Canada will be able to be vaccinated by September. Do you think the contracts might disprove that? Yeah, possibly. Uh, you know, I think it's easy to be skeptical about what the Prime Minister has been telling us, because if you go back to the start of his messaging in early December, uh, pretty well everything he has told us has been inaccurate or a stretch of the truth. You know, he started telling us back then that, uh, you know, they had uh, negotiated early with companies to, to buy tons of vaccines. Uh, well, they obviously did later on, but not early on. Uh, he said we had uh, we'd done better on vaccines than virtually every other country in the world. Well, as you said, you know, we're now 39th, uh, which is which is embarrassing. Um, he also said that we had more deals than anybody else in the world, which is not true. Uh, we have seven deals, and that's great, but so do the U.K., U.S., and Europe. They all have seven, eight, or nine deals. Um, you know, he, he told us at the beginning that uh, one of the reasons why we don't, uh, we don't have uh, domestic manufacturing is because the company I ran, GlaxoSmithKline, closed its facility under Prime Minister Harper, which is not true. Uh, the list goes on, and even this week, um, you know, he came out with the announcement around Novavax, which was a good a good announcement and the fact that we're building capacity at the National Research Council facility that they're building. But, you know, he stood in front of Canadians again and said, you know, we're going to have millions of doses coming out of that facility by July. Uh, I called them on that and, and there was no way that was going to happen. And a half an hour later, you know, they, they uh, revamped their message and said, well, it'll be by the end of the year. And that's even a stretch. So, you know, the list of, of, you know, I, I hate to call it this, but it is propaganda, and Canadians deserve a lot better than what they're getting with respect to this information and the promises that we're hearing. Um, it, it's just, it's, it, it, you know, and today, um, you know, he comes out and says, our plan is working. I don't know if everybody saw that quote, but that's quoted from one of his uh, talks yesterday. Well, first of all, there was no plan, it seems, and it's certainly not working. You know, Canadians are dying. You know, people are losing their businesses. You know, people are suffering from mental health problems. You know, this is really serious stuff, and the Prime Minister doesn't seem to think it's really that important. Um, you know, it seems that what he's interested in is making sure he gets reelected and gets a majority. And, you know, Canadians need to not accept this situation they need to stand up and say look we should have done so much better after what we did with SARS and H1N1 mm -hmm. so that, that's a bit of a rant but you know I, I like a lot of Canadians are pretty upset about what's going on as I hear 
you know, people that I know, good friends of mine that live in the UK and the US, and they've been vaccinated. Um, I don't anticipate getting vaccinated till May, probably. Um, so, you know, this is disturbing. And it's not just that I have to, we have to wait for a vaccine to get vaccinated. This is a life or death situation for 100 people a day in our country. You know, every month we don't have vaccines, another 3,000 people will die. And I think that's, you know, that's a message we've got to start shooting back to our, our government in Ottawa. This is just unacceptable. You needed to do better. Uh, Mr. Lucas, so what should they have done? We're in a predicament here, and we're treading water with, with, with weights on our ankles. Um, what should the federal government have done at the outset, and what can they, and what should they do now? Yeah, great question, Troy. So if you go back to the beginning, you know, we should have known that the, the federal government should have known what to do in this situation because we had been through SARS, we had been through H1N1, that pandemic. Uh, there were learnings that came out of that. Um, the, the federal government would have known that the way out of this would be a vaccine as it was in H1N1. Um, so uh, they, they should have been on top of the situation in Canada knowing what our vaccine capability was domestically. Um, and as soon as they learned that uh, seven different companies, six different companies or more were developing vaccines around the world, I personally would have got on the phone with the president of each of those companies and said, look, uh, we want to buy vaccines from you. Um, what is it going to take to get enough vaccines to vaccinate our whole population in as short a period of time as possible. Uh, so say six months. Um, and I would have had a discussion around what do we have to pay you to get there? And I suspect that's what Israel did because they've achieved uh, a, an incredible vaccination rate in Israel. Um, you know, I would have um, asked, you know, if we... Uh, contributed $250, $500 million to the development of the vaccines like the U.S. did through Warp Speed or the U.K. did or Europe did, will that give me priority access to vaccines uh, earlier? Um, so I would have negotiated with those presidents, uh, at least on a top line, and said, what is it going to take? But the problem is, is that Mr. Trudeau and his government had no relationship with those companies. They wouldn't know who to call. And so they lost a lot of time, uh, you know, trying to figure out what to do. So, I mean, that could have made a big difference. Um, so, you know, what can we do now? Uh, what can they do now? Um, I, unfortunately, I think, Roy, the, you know, the bottom line is, and it has been from the outset, that uh, the federal government purchased large quantities of vaccine uh, for delivery starting in April. And uh, no matter, and, and once they got earlier approval on Moderna and Pfizer, they realized that, oops, we need vaccine in the first quarter of this year. And so I suspect they picked up the phone and talked to those companies and said, what can you ship us? And those companies, uh, Pfizer said, we can, we can try and get you and make best effort to get you 4 million doses by the end of March. And Moderna said 2 million doses by the end of March. 
they, I'm sure they made no commitments as to what the weekly rollout was. I'm sure what they said was we will make best efforts because that wasn't part of the original contract. Who would have, who would have negotiated a contract for, you know, tens of millions of doses starting in April and for two or four for the first quarter of the year? <laughs> Wouldn't have done that. So, you know, unfortunately, what we're going to get is six million doses by the end of March. And I don't believe anything's going to change that. You can see all the discussion about domestic manufacturing and COVAX and getting 1.9 million doses from them. That's not going to come until, I suspect, April at the absolute earliest. Um, so, you know, unfortunately, Canadians are stuck with the current scenario, and I don't think it's going to change. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, the provinces might want to go it alone, but you know, they, they, they are not going to be able to achieve anything. These doses yeah. are spoken for around the world at this point. Yeah. And now we're going to raid Kovacs. Yeah. Yeah. That's Which is really, like I said earlier, raiding a food bank after you drop off a loaf of bread. Yes. And, it, and it's embarrassing. I mean, it is you know, embarrassing. As, a, as a Canadian, I'm embarrassed with that. You know, and I suspect many are. And then we also, uh, last, last spring, jumped between the uh, vaccine developmental sheets with the People's Republic of China. And then they reneged on that deal a couple of months later and left Canada in the lurch. That's not talked about. So so it, it is what it is. I hear you saying it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to hear this political posturing. We'll hear, no doubt, the federal government at some point blaming the provinces again for not properly handling the rollout when they don't share information with the provinces that would help them with the rollout. Yes, and unfortunately, again, that's been one of the faults of the federal government. You know, Mr. Trudeau and his cabinet particularly, you know, they started out, you know, blaming the provinces for not getting doses in arms. Then they they shifted to criticizing the companies for not delivering doses. They criticized uh, Harper for for closing down vaccine manufacturing. Now they're now they're blaming it on uh, Mulroney going back that far. Well, next it it'll on, be John Diefenbaker. Yeah, I, you know, and it's, it's interesting that Mr. Trudeau doesn't go back to the real story in the beginning of the of the story, which is blaming his father. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I found it very interesting that the Canadian Coalition for the Rights of Children... Uh, wrote an open letter to premiers and education minister ministers, and it's the right to education during COVID-19. Now, this letter, uh, again, sent to education ministers and premiers, signed by more than 100 prominent physicians across Canada from all disciplines. And joining us to talk about this is Dr. Martha Fulford. She's an infectious diseases specialist, also associate professor of medicine at McMaster University. Dr. Fulford, thank you so much for taking the time, and uh, it's good to talk to you. Well, thank you for asking me. We just start from the very beginning. Is it surprising to you that you even have to write this letter to education ministers and premiers? It is, actually. I, I think a lot of us have been struggling uh, 
when I say us, I'm, I'm referring to physicians who are frontline physicians working with children. Uh, we've been struggling to highlight the harm that is being done to our children. Uh, kids, I mean, this is our future. It's the future of our province. It's the future of our country. And it, it has been extraordinary to me that we actually ha- are in a position we have to advocate for the rights of children uh, in a situation like this. May I just read a little bit from the letter from the beginning and ask you to comment on it? Mm-hmm. Dear Minister of Health, Minister of Education, and Premier, and Prime Minister, I guess that's for Quebec, protecting the population from SARS-CoV-2, especially those at risk of severe outcomes, is an important public health priority. Equally important is protecting children during the pandemic. We ask you, in your position of authority, to recognize the unique needs and rights of children as we enter the second year of COVID-19 pandemic. Current responses to the pandemic continue to include measures that infringe on these rights. More concerning, these interventions, chief among them school closures, stop our children from reaching their full potential and harm their health, physical and mental, and general well-being. I'll just read another line or two here. Failing to act now will incur many disability-adjusted life years in our children for decades to come. This is particularly unnecessary, considering that the data consistently shows that the risk of transmission in schools is low, even when the community transmission is high. To that end, keeping schools open is the safest option, not only for the overall health and well-being of children, but for society at large now and in the future. I I guess it's self-explanatory, but maybe not to everyone. Dr. Fulford, would you just expand on that, please? So... When we started this last March, we, obviously we didn't exactly know what was going to what we were going to face, and so the decisions from last March should not be the same decisions we're making today when we know a lot more about uh, COVID. One of the extraordinarily good news stories about this pandemic, if you want to think of a good news story, is that young people are essentially spared from uh, any severe disease or poor outcome. Not to say it will never happen, but for young people and particularly uh, children and adolescents, COVID, if you look at the actual numbers, is less severe than influenza. This is clearly not true for the older population, but I'm, I'm speaking about young people here. So this is actually very reassuring. So if a child happens to get COVID in whatever environment they happen to be in, the risk to that child of any kind of a severe outcome is extraordinarily low. So we know that now we know that COVID is not a risk for children. We've also got data from Canada and from around the world that has consistently shown that schools have a very low likelihood of transmission. Schools are not what we refer to as amplifiers of the virus. They reflect what's going on in the community. And This is true in Canada, it's been true in Ontario, it's true in Quebec, in Alberta and British Columbia. It's true overseas. Equally important are countries where they have looked at the transmission, the schools have shown that uh, in countries where they track by occupation, that teachers are at no higher risk of getting COVID, and this is tracked by hospitalizations and and, uh, intensive care admissions. All of this should be massively reassuring in terms of the risk of COVID. But the other part of the scale, which is the part that we're advocating for, is the harm being done to our children. Schools are more than just academics, so academics are incredibly important for future success in life. 
but we're, we're seeing dramatic increases in mental health, in children self-harming, and even very young children self-harming. We're seeing huge increases in eating disorders. We're seeing, it's no secret that there have been almost four times as many calls to the, to the child helplines. And this is a cumulative thing, and children need human interaction. They need to be social. They need to to be at school, actually. I mean, and to deprive them of that just seems... It's, it's, a, it's a parallel pandemic that is completely avoidable, what we are doing to our children. So the risk of COVID is very low. Schools are safe from that perspective. But what we're doing to them is not safe. And, and I, I get a bit cross, actually, when I hear people saying schools aren't safe. I, I think safe from what? They're certainly safe from COVID. But what we're doing by not having our kids there, that is what's not safe uh, as far as we're concerned. And that's what we're advocating for. We're saying that children need to be considered as a unique and valuable population in the same way that we're trying to protect our hospitals, which, of course, is the whole point of all, all that we're doing is so we don't get our hospitals overwhelmed. In the same way we're protecting our hospitals, our long-term care, we must protect our children. They are an incredibly vulnerable and valuable population that must be treated uniquely and individually because that is our future. So in the letter you write, or the, the doctors you cumulatively write in the open letter, we ask that the following become part of national and provincial policies to ensure the safety and health of our children, protect our communities, and meet our international commitments. There are three. Would you share with us what they are? So the first uh, request uh, that we think that should be uh, uh, Non, I think all three of them should be non-negotiable. The first is that schools uh, should remain open for face-to-face learning, at least as an option. I mean, there are some parents who I appreciate may still not want to have their kids to go to school, but I think the vast majority of, of parents and children do want to be at school. So schools should remain open for face-to-face learning unless somebody can show that there's high-quality evidence to show that doing otherwise is more dangerous for the overall physical and mental health of children. At the moment, there's this presumption and this uh, message that somehow schools are dangerous. This has never been shown to be the case anywhere in the world, and it's a highly unfortunate message uh, that's going out there. We're saying schools are not dangerous. That should, is not the message that should be going out, and that schools should remain open because it is better for our children. The second uh, request Children should be considered a special population for whom impacts of any and all policies are considered separately with a child lens to consider adverse effects and to prioritize their health and well-being. Again, policies uh, have different impacts on different populations, and a complete lockdown the way we've, we've had in various provinces, when it includes things like schools, closing down playgrounds, closing down all outdoor activities has a massively detrimental impact on children. And a lot of those uh, interventions or measures are, we would argue, unnecessary. Things like outdoor activities have not been shown to contribute significantly to the spread of COVID. So stopping them probably doesn't make any difference, quite frankly, in terms of, of the degree of transmission we're having. And yet we're doing a lot of harm. And this is uh, the same with the schools. So when we're considering any intervention at a societal level, the, 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 both the physical but as well as the, the mental and social well-being of our children need to be considered separately. 
And then the final one is that uh, the third request is that we need to think now about the future. So additional efforts need to be made to improve access to services to support children at high risk for mental health and academic difficulties. Uh, essentially, children have had a year of very interrupted education and a lot of, of stress and harm done to them. We need to prepare for this. There's also a, a, a group of children that probably are completely unaccounted to, and I'm going to call them the lost children. We don't even know how many children now are missing from school completely because when one switches to this online or hybrid version, the children who are already marginal, who are already vulnerable, who may have completely dropped out, some provinces are, are making an effort to try to track them. But I would venture to say that in a lot of places, we don't even know how many lost children we have. But some estimates are in the range of 100 to 200,000 kids in, in wow. Canada wow. are now just completely out of the school system. Wow. And again, that's their entire future. Uh, so yeah. we need to think about how we're going to both uh, support mental health and the harm, as well as help them with the academic uh, impact, the negative academic impact from an interrupted education, as well as find the lost children and try to get them back into the school system. So we have about two minutes. I, I just want to focus on one. This letter is really fascinating. And and I think that uh, everyone who has a child, everyone who's, who's educated or involved in education, anyone, everybody, read it. Um, the right to education during COVID-19 open letter calls for school reopenings from the Canadian Coalition for the Rights to Children. And that's rights of children.ca. Here's, here's what I'd like you to speak to in the time we have left. Closing schools complicates public health follow-up and disease containment and may put community elders at risk. And in part, it says, for many families, child care arrangements include grandparents who are more likely at risk for severe outcomes. While the evidence shows that transmission from children is generally low, if the justification for school closing or closing school is the risk for transmission by children, putting them in close contact with older members of society is inconsistent with protecting community elders. We have a minute and a half. Please. So if a child's at school, they're in their own cohort with young people. They're easily uh, tracked because we know exactly who they're in contact with. If children are out of school, somebody has to look after those kids. There are a lot of parents that are still required to work. There are a lot of essential workers. I'm not sure what people think happens to children when schools are closed, but they're going to be spending an awful lot more time indoors. They're going to be spending a lot more time with their grandparents who may well be the primary caregivers in, in these difficult situations. A lot of children are out and about because what are they going to be doing if they're not uh, at school or online? So we have a, a much less control over their activities. And so this idea that somehow closing schools is protecting vulnerable people seems a little bit of an unusual thought, uh, particularly because with the highest risk populations, which are the multi-generational crowded homes, having those people in such close contact all day long seems sort of inconsistent with the idea that we're somehow protecting vulnerable elders. Uh, and it also seems an unusual reason to shut down an entire school system. So we're really, if a child's in school, it's a much easier to track them. It's much easier to do contact tracing. And as we've seen in Ontario and elsewhere in Canada, we had very minimal transmission in our schools. When you think of the denominator of children in class, we had very few cases. So clearly this was not a high-risk environment uh, that okay. they were going to be bringing it home. In the few seconds we have left, you, you obviously have no difficulty getting physicians across this country who represent different disciplines in the medical professions to sign on. 
No, we didn't. It was all word of mouth, too. Wow. And and you need public support on this. Not not only is it the doctors, but you need public support for this as well. We do. Yeah. So, again, folks, Canadian Coalition for the Rights of Children, that's rightsofchildren.ca, and you can find the the right to education during COVID-19. Open letter calls for school reopenings. You'll find it very, very quickly. One of the greatest football players this country has ever produced, member of the Canadian Football Hall of Fame, two great cups as a player with Edmonton, and uh, general manager with the Tiger Cats. And so I want to talk to Neil, who's one of the most, actually one of the nicest people I know, and one of the most intelligent people I know, and absolutely a genius when it comes to the business of sport and sport generally. And I want to talk to Neil about the Super Bowl, because you, sir, you would have been a star in the Super Bowl, any of them. You would have. Come on, don't be... Well, well first off, um, are you sure you you know you're talking to me with that great introduction? The second is, and I, it's three as a player and one as a GM, a great cup. So since they were so, relatively yeah, hard, to, and I'm sitting in a room, actually my loft with pictures, I'm looking at uh, some great memories as I talk to you, and then all it does in this room is scream football. It's wonderful. Well, yeah, I'm sorry. I knew that. I knew it was three as a player. Know, and that's was okay. Hey, look, we all, uh, I'm not, I don't, the last but person I, I want to try to correct. But I resent that you, you kick my ass on the golf course, <laughs> course, course every time, so I'm not going to give you all the clarity you deserve. <laughs> anyway, my sport, friend. By the way, you want to talk a little football. Maybe, maybe you'll lull him to sleep with that request or that invite. Oh, yeah. I don't yeah, he's got to come on your show. Like, come on, man. Mr. Ford, yeah, step know. up. Step up. Exactly. Come on, man. Jeez. It's awful. I mean, he used to be on the show all the time. Yeah, I know. He used to call me and ask to be on the show. <laughs> well, yeah. Before he became premier. Reason. Yeah, it's, anyway. it's, you got to like it better when it gets harder, even though it's tougher on you. It's, it's no different in sport or in business. You have to relish those opportunities, even though they're very difficult on you and and people around you. Yeah, he should drop that Twitter handle at Ford Nation because he's compromising what Ford Nation stood for. Mm-hmm. Doug, 1-800-263-2428, anytime. Okay, my friend, Mr. Lumsden, and, and I want everybody to know that you truly are one of the great gentlemen uh, in our society. And, and you're a brilliant guy, and you're almost as good a football player as your son. Almost. Almost. I, I keep saying, of course, these are the things that never would come true. And I have, I've had the great you know, uh, pleasure of experience competition with my daughter and the Amazing Race and, That's right. and playing golf with my son. But I would have just, if I could go back and take him back and be in the same backfield, pullback, oh. tailback. Oh, man. That would oh. just, um, I mean, that's a, Gordy and his sons. Hey, I love Jim Germany. He was he was tremendous and one of the best. But I'd take twenty eight behind me in a heartbeat. Uh, Gordy and his sons, eh? Yeah, yeah. How cool was that? That was just the best. Okay, so so you've won three great cups as a player. One as a as a GM. So I, I want to ask you first of all about SBLV. 
the Chiefs, to me, and you and I exchanged some texts on this earlier in the week. I, I said to you that I think they're an unconventional NFL team, more like the greatest show on turf in the 1980s, the St. Louis Rams. Tremendous team speed and innovation. A young, quick, extremely talented quarterback. And a perhaps underrated defense. So, and, and I, I texted you that it, sometimes it looks to me like they're making plays up on the fly. And you said not so much. So when you look at when you look at that that KC offensive team, I and mean, you were the you were the guy in the backfield, what do you see? Well, actually, I, I thought your observation was was very interesting because I had no one else in, in certainly my circles or, or even on radio or NFL they have have compared Kansas City with the greatest show on turf. Kurt Warner was the, the quarterback and is in the yeah. Hall of Fame, and Marshall Falk, one of the best running backs of all time, Isaac Bruce. Torrey Holden, there were other receivers, not to diminish their input, but they are the stars, and Mike Martz was the offensive coordinator. And then you look at Kansas City. And I, so what I did then is I went back and sort of, not sort of, I watched some more video of the Rams. I found some, and then I watched a couple of games recently, obviously, but played back some games that Kansas City led by Patrick Mahomes, Eric Biamini, is the offensive coordinator, of course, Andy Reid is the head coach. Tyreek Hill, uh, Sammy Watkins, Travis Kelsey, Edwards Alaire is the running back. They're very, very similar. The difference is what Patrick Mahomes brings to the quarterback position is not only mobility, but that communication with these receivers and running back if, if in fact, Edwards Alaire is out in a pattern and not staying in and helping his offensive line with the blocking assignment. And what I noticed was that their communication with their quarterback on the move is better than anybody I've ever seen. And teams, at, I'm at many levels, but certainly in the pro teams practice, uh, you know, that drill, the, whether it's a, some call it the scramble drill, Whereas receivers that are deep come back to their quarterback, receivers that are running short or middle road go deep. But this group from Kansas City apply that, but apply it in a different way. And because of their skill level and speed, especially Tyreek Hill, when they start finding and coming back, as the defense begins to flow, because they're, a lot of them in that secondary are reading the quarterback and Mahomes, as he starts to threaten that line of scrimmage, the receivers that are coming don't, try to run with the defender that's in front of them and cover, they actually slow down a little bit and find soft spots. And Patrick Mahomes reads those soft spots and drops the ball in there. And in, and in cases when you're talking about certainly a Tyree Kill, but Sammy Watkins can do it as well. When you get them in a space, it is scary. And, you know, we, we talked football last night with the coaches I've, I've worked with, at, and I'm going to help coach at, at Nelson High School next year when football comes back. And we talked about, okay, what do you play? What defense do you play them? Do you play them with two deep safety against the Kansas City Chiefs? I said, they do that, they're dead. Because if those two deep, you put the speed underneath and let them run with the football, it's open. So um, it, you're right, it is a very similar to the greatest show on turf. It's much more run-and-gun style. Um, a little bit similar to the CFL without question. And uh, Eric Biemini has done such a tremendous job of adjusting to certain things, and he's going to have to come tomorrow with his two starting offensive tackles yeah. not dressing. Huge, huge deal. 
Um, well, let me take a quick break, Neil, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about the, the other team because there's a certain player there, the GOAT, greatest of all time, 43 years of age. And my, my gut says Chiefs, my head says don't bet against a guy who has six Super Bowl rings, which is more than most NFL teams have appearances in the Super Bowl. That's right. I, I don't know if I've been a, around a, a, I was going to say Grey Cup, but a Super Bowl that has so many elements that, that got people sitting on their edge of the seat with respect to who do I pick in pools and all sorts of things. Um, so it's very, I, I, this is very intriguing. And, of course, then everything that is surrounding it that has influenced it throughout the season uh, with COVID-19 and, has, to your point, uh, has made a difference in the preparations the two weeks leading up to the Super Bowl. Yeah. So let me ask you then, and, and I want to ask you about what it's like to prep and then play in and get the ring. But the, but the Buccaneers, I would, I would say, are a more conventional NFL team than the Chiefs. So you've got uh, Brady at quarterback, 43 years of age, not very mobile. But how do you bet against a player with more Super Bowl rings, as I said, than most NFL teams have Super Bowl appearances? The Bucks front seven on, on defense are among the league's best. And the Chiefs O-line, as you pointed out, missing both starting tackles. So my gut says Chiefs, but my head says don't don't bet against Brady. What do you what do you say? How are you going? How do you choose? <laughs> you know, I've I've jumped back and forth on this every time I, I try to like put it. You know, I make some notes and I think about it. And I'm in a couple pools with guys that I coach with, and we don't have to thankfully have our picking until tomorrow at four thirty or sometime like that. But yeah, there are there are small pieces that. I try to reflect on and look back on, like the difficulty Tampa Bay had last week when Brady got pressure. Uh, he threw the ball up. That's the one time where you see his age come through, and it's not because he can't move around, because he's never been highly mobile, but he's always been really good in the footwork within that three- or four-yard square to move around. But when he gets pressure, he now tries to get it downfield and throw it out of bounds, and it uh, cost him two interceptions last game. So it's going to be up to the Kansas City Chiefs, and there's one guy people should pay attention to one way or the other. Either he's going to make a difference for Kansas City's front seven, or it won't matter because the Tampa offensive line does a great job, and that's defensive tackle Chris Jones. Uh, they will try to line him up and create situations where he is. They force the block, they're forced to block him one-on-one. So it, that will be interesting because when pressure comes in, it proves that if there's no hot read or if the receivers that are in some way still getting used to Brady, but it certainly is a whole lot better than it was in the first part of the season, um, and sensitive to what is going on with blitzes and coverages to give their quarterback a break if there's pressure. And they don't always know that, right, because they're going downfield and their their eyes are on coverage and they're making decisions. So Chris Jones, if they get him in a position that frees up those ends for Kansas City, and blitzing linebackers, uh, it could be a tough day for Tom Brady. Now, doing anything for 60 minutes is really hard all the time. And and teams make adjustments on the go. Everybody watches the games. They look at these pads on the sidelines. They see what's going on. Everyone self-corrects immediately and tries to get a, a bit of an upper hand the next time they go on the field. And that's where that chess game comes in. But it's you know the Cinderella story is really tough to bet against. Yeah, and because he's got, I mean, the guys like Evans and, and Godwin and Antonio Brown. I think he's going to play, and Scott Miller and Gronkowski yeah. and Leonard Fournette. 
out of the running back and Ron Jones, who I think is highly underrated as a running back. Um, they've just been getting more and more comfortable with the way this offense is being run. And it's a little scary uh, to, to me to think, how do you bet against a really good defense that you pointed out and an offense that can light it up, except there's, there's one thing that one stat, and I'm not a big stat guy, but there's one stat when you compare to the Kansas City Chiefs, and that is the Bucks have never have, don't have long drives for touchdowns. They they're very successful on short fields and piling up the points. Whereas Kansas City has a, a much higher percentage of success on longer drives from their thirty and forty versus a short, and a short field. But so that's a that's an advantage to Kansas City. Okay, so I, you just made me decide that I'm going to bet my two bucks. On the Bucks, and I'm going to say 12 points. Uh, I what? I know, I know, I know. Well, I'm not well. I know. I get it. I get it. Hey, well, listen. So before we, we, so you bet me now. You're two. Are we going? Yeah, two bucks. Two bucks. So you're. So you're. Well, yeah. Okay, I won't even fine. take points. I'll just go even up with you. Okay, two bucks. Even up. You're taking Tampa now, and then because you take Tampa, I have. I will happily take Kansas City. Okay. Yeah. In this bet. even up. Yeah. Never mind yeah. the 12 points. Even. Yeah. Well, okay, so just look, I, I, I have 15 seconds here. I wanted more. Uh, <laughs> what's it like to, to get the ring? It's unbelievable, and it, it really is. It's, it's spectacular. You know you're going to get it the second uh, that gun goes off and ends the game. And I think that, you know, this has been so different for the players this year. Uh, they've done such a fantastic job, as the NFL has in the organization's yeah to get their teams ready to play with COVID and testing and all okay. that. And I think they have uh, they all deserve a lot of a lot of credit for being okay, able to my friend. off. I have to stop here. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 